Merry Christmas, City Light. Yeah, great to hear that response. And uh, like Chuck said, my name's Doug. I get to be one of the pastors for our church. And I just got to tell you, 1115 folks, man, some of you guys, you're just coming and you're checking out who's Jesus. Some of you, you are committed to Jesus, passionately pursuing him. But either way, you get the best version of the music and the message, right? This is our third time through. I love worshiping with you guys. Um, I'll start with a story. In 1992, I remember laying on a hospital bed. It had bright white sheets and a man in a hairnet leaned over and he said, I'm going to put this over your mouth while you count down from 10. I smiled and started counting down. 10, 9, and I was out. The doctors called it happy gas and I was out for over eight hours. While they cut open my chest, they broke my sternum, cut up my tiny little chest muscles, and then rebuilt my whole chest, put a metal bar in there to support it, and then stitched me back up. It was a major surgery. It was kind of a big deal for a 12-year-old. But I wasn't scared. Like, the complications could have been life-threatening. When I woke up, it was painful just to move. I woke up with tubes coming out of me and new scars on me, but I wasn't scared. I couldn't run for months, I couldn't laugh for weeks, and I couldn't walk for days, but I wasn't scared. In fact, I was actually quite peaceful through the whole process. Why? I was peaceful because the doctor told me everything that would happen before it happened. I still remember meeting in his office with him and my mom and my dad. He sat down on a little black stool, looked me in the eye, and he said, Doug, this is a major surgery. It's going to hurt. And then he walked me through the whole process of what would happen, the whole ordeal from hospital stays to happy gas to the pain of rolling over. And the fact that he told me what would happen before it happened helped me get through what I had to go through. Like, there were some really hard times. Like, when my older brother intentionally would make me laugh because he knew that it hurt, but the doctor told me that would happen. Or whenever I woke up in my hospital bed and rolled over and screamed in pain, but the doc told me that would happen too. Or when I had to sit out and couldn't play soccer for months and just rode the bench, but the doc told me that would happen too. So even sitting on the sidelines or that laughter or that pain, it had meaning and purpose. There's something about knowing what's going to happen before it happens that helps us get through what we got to go through. This is why you want to make sure someone ahead of you in the line survives the roller coaster before you get strapped in yourself. We want to know what's going to happen. This is why you research your vacation destination before the plane lands at the airport. You want to know what's going to happen. And this is why most of you probably stalked us on Facebook or checked out our website before you ever showed up here on a Sunday. You want to make sure you know what's going to happen. Make sure we're not snake handlers, right? Just so you know, we don't got anything like hidden in the back of the stage. And this morning, we're looking at the months and the years right after the birth of God's promised king, Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see is those days and weeks and months were all predicted and promised by God. 
the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the easy times and the hard times, they were all predicted and promised by God. And God's promises changed how Joseph and Mary and Jesus and Israel got through those early times. How so? Well, turn to Matthew 2 and we'll pick it up in verse 13. By this point in time, baby Jesus has been born. Now, don't worry, we're going to talk about that story on Christmas Eve. He's been born, he's been given his name, and some rich foreign wise men travel a great distance to come visit him. When they visit him, they give him some gifts. He's just a baby born in a barn to some poor parents, but these wise men give him some gifts and they worship him. They bow down and they worship this baby. Now, that doesn't sit well with Herod, who's like the local ruler in that area. He was insecure about this baby. I mean, Herod had all the power in the area, but here's this baby born in a barn to some poor parents, and he might rise up to take over Herod's throne. So Herod wants to get rid of Jesus, okay? Then we get Matthew 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, that's these wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Okay, dads, imagine that you are Joseph. Your woman just gave birth, and you're kind of in freak-out mode because you've never been a dad before. You weren't the one who got her pregnant in the first place, but now you've got to figure out how to raise this child, how to feed this child, and how to get the donkeys just to shut up so that you can get a little bit of sleep. Then these rich foreign wise dudes come by and pay your baby a visit. You don't know where they're from, but they brought some really expensive gifts that you could cash in online and use that to pay for a hotel room for a few weeks while your wife recovers. But then you go to sleep and an angel appears to you in your dreams. And he says to you, um, yeah, I'm going to need you to load everybody up and go to Egypt. Man, if I was Joseph, I would have asked that angel what he's been smoking, right? Like, bro, where did you come up with that idea? I would have thought, man, in my head, why did I have this crazy dream? There ain't no dude who wants to hang out in a barn with a bunch of animals and a baby boy and a postpartum mom, much less get told you got to load them up on a donkey and go to Egypt. I'd be like, no way. Hold on a second. But look at Joseph's response. It stuns me. Matthew 2, verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. No complaining, no questioning, no doubt, no asking the angel what he'd been smoking. Just obedience. Now, men in the room, this is a side note, but I think we should note it all the same. Men, where was Joseph in this whole process of the birth of Jesus? He was with his bride. He was with his baby boy. Joseph was actively engaged and involved in the whole thing. And while he was changing the diapers or getting water for Mary, he was also praying and listening to God. So men, can I just challenge you? Can I encourage you? 
be engaged. Be actively involved in the life of your family and the life of your children. When they're little, change their diapers. When they get older, give them a phone call. Care for their real needs. And while you do that, man, pray for your family. It doesn't have to be like long, extravagant prayers. Just pray for them to love Jesus. Pray for them to trust the Bible. Pray for your children to follow Jesus through their whole life. Be engaged, men. Okay, now back to the story, all right? That was an aside. Here we are, back to the story. An angel shows up in a dream, says, hey, go to Egypt. Joseph obeys right away. My question is, why? Like, how did he obey so quickly? What inspired that obedience? And I think verse 15 gives us a hint. Matthew 2, verse 15 says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt, I called my son. So here's what's happening. God predicted and promised even this flight to Egypt thing. Just like the doctor told me everything that would happen before it happened, God told Joseph and Mary and all of Israel what would happen when his promised king arrived. Now go back and put yourself in Joseph's shoes again. You're raised in a good home with parents who love God, and your dad helps you memorize some Bible verses. Your mom teaches you some Bible lessons, and one day she teaches you about these predictions about the Messiah, this promised king of God who would come and rescue his people. And maybe on one of those days, in those Bible lessons with mom, she took you to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And on that day, it was just another promise from God. It was just another Bible lesson from mom or just another Bible verse you had to memorize for dad. But now you're a grown man and an angel showed up to you not too long ago telling you to adopt Mary's baby boy because he's God's promised king. And now you're sleeping in a stable and another angel shows up and says, hey, I'm going to need you to load everybody up and go to Egypt. And in your mind, you're like, oh yeah, that Bible verse dad had memorized. Oh yeah, I remember when mom taught me about that. The dots begin to connect and all of a sudden it makes more sense to you. You have a little more reason to load everybody up, pack them on the donkey and head out and obey to go to Egypt. You see, God's promises inspire our obedience. God's promises inspire our obedience obedience. Joseph knew these promises of God, and so when he heard the command, he obeyed them. God's promises inspire our obedience. Now, what if we got this? What if we grabbed hold of the wonderful truth that God's promises inspire our obedience? You know, I think most people try to be good people. And Christians, we usually try to obey the Bible. And I think the reason why we try to be good people is because we think that we're supposed to be good people. Like, we're supposed to be nice to our neighbors, so we try our best to be nice to our neighbors, even if they are Clark Griswold, right? And Christians know that we're supposed to give our money away, so we try our best, and we write a check, and we give some money to the church, but then we feel guilty if it's not quite 10%. But when you search the Bible, God doesn't inspire obedience with guilt trips and ought tos. 
He inspires obedience with his promises. That's what he did with Joseph right here. For example, consider Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Do you hear the promise in that? Man, your Father is a king, a generous king, who loves to give you his kingdom. He has endless resources to share with you, endless pleasures to give to you. I mean, what a promise. And then verse 33 says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. The command for you to give to the needy is inspired by the promise of God to give you his kingdom. God's promises inspire our obedience. So can I ask you, where do you need to obey God? Where do you need to obey God? Maybe it's in your marriage or in your parenting. Maybe it's this decision you got to make or some actions that you need to take. But you know God has told you to do that. The Bible commands you to do that. And now with that in mind, what is a promise from God that could inspire your obedience? Maybe you need to ask your city group this week and say, man, I know I'm supposed to do this thing. The Bible's told me, God's told me I need to do this thing. Help me find some promises that can inspire that obedience. Listen, you don't have to obey just because you have to obey. We get to obey. We are empowered and inspired and motivated to obey by God's promises. I think that's the first thing we see in Matthew chapter 2. The story continues, and after Joseph and his family skedaddle to Egypt and get out of there, Israel goes nuts, or no, Herod goes nuts back in Israel, right? The ruler of the land kind of goes crazy. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, these wise men had told, them, told Herod, hey, we'll come back and tell you where Jesus is, but then they didn't. They, they stood him up. And so when he saw that he had been tricked, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. So the most powerful man in the region is scared of a baby born in a barn. And in the fury of his insecurity, he orders for all the male children in Bethlehem to be murdered. As experts estimate, that would have been about 10 to 20 baby boys immediately killed by Roman soldiers. No questions asked, no mercy shown. It was evil. It was disgusting. And by this time, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they're gone. They're, they're safe in Egypt. But all the families in Bethlehem are still there. They're hurting. Mothers cry and weep as their babies are taken from their arms. Dads throw fists and cuss out soldiers in an attempt to rescue their baby boys. The whole village comes out to see what is going on and joins in the crying and the weeping and the yelling. The Bible has a word for that crying. 
And the word is lamentation. Lamentation is what happens when the grief and the pain inside of you comes out. Sometimes it screams. Sometimes it heaves and sobs. Sometimes it's fury and fighting. Sometimes it's complete silence. Lamentation is what happens when the grief and pain stuck down in you comes out. Now look at the next verse. Verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Before we go on, let me just read that one more time. Hear this. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. God predicted even this. Even the pain, even the ugly, even the lamentation. Here's how he predicted it. Verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. There's nothing that we could say or do to make that day easier for Bethlehem. But I think there is something we can learn. And that's this. God's promises give meaning to our pain. God's promises give meaning to our pain. Just like the doctor told me that when I first rolled over, it would hurt. But I still had to try. And so I tried and I cried. But that pain had meaning. God's promises give meaning to our pain. I know it's Christmas, and we're excited about new Lego toys or pretty jewelry or new socks from Grandma. But can we talk about the dark side of Christmas a little bit? The dark side of Christmas is that for some of you, this will be your first Christmas as a single parent. For some of you, this will be your first Christmas without mom or your brother or your sister. Some of you, you can't afford gifts for your kids this year. Some of you are unemployed, lonely, afraid. And for you, Christmas hurts. Christmas means lamentation. And nothing that I could say or do could make your life better or easier but something God has said, something God has promised can give meaning even in this season of pain. It it can give meaning even to your pain. So can I share with you a promise from God that might give meaning to your pain? It comes from Isaiah 43, verse two. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Notice that it doesn't say, 
when the waters split before you, when you pass through the waters. And it, it doesn't say when the rivers recede the moment your toe touches the water. No, it says when you go through the rivers, plural. And it doesn't say when I deliver you from the flames. It says when you go through the fire. That's pain. That's loss and grief, depression and loneliness. That is a lamentation. And God's promise to you in the waters, in the fire, in that lamentation is, I will be with you. When you're in it, I'm in it with you. God's promise that gives meaning to our pain isn't that one day it will all be easy. God's promise that gives meaning to our pain is that he is with us now. He suffers with you. He hurts with you. He laments with you. God's promise gives meaning even to our pain. And some of you are in that pain right now. You feel the pain. It's unique to you, whether it's physical or emotional or relational or spiritual. And I want to invite you, take Isaiah 43, verse 2. Put it on your phone. Write it down. Put it on your mirror. Get that promise in front of you and trust that God isn't waiting for you to get through the waters. He's in the waters with you now. That's the promise of God. The story continues in Matthew 2. There's one more section to wrap up the chapter. After Joseph takes his family to Egypt, and after the massacre, the pain in Bethlehem, an angel visits Joseph again and tells him to head home. So they load up, and they're heading for Judea. But then verse 22, when he, that's Joseph, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So Joseph wanted to live in Judea, where the big city was, where the money was, where the fun was. Joseph wanted his family right at the center of culture and politics and religion. I mean, Joseph wanted to be where the action was, right? Because after all, his son was God's promised king, so it only makes sense to go live in Judea, but then an angel visits him again and says, actually, go to Nazareth. Nazareth was Joseph's hometown. It was a small town, a poor working class town. It was boring. Like, Nazareth had this reputation in Israel of being boring and, quite frankly, dumb. There's a saying in Israel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When you Google your hometown, chances are one of the results will be a Wikipedia article. And most every town's Wikipedia article has a section in it called Notable People. Like my hometown, the 48th governor of Texas is from my hometown. And the rock band Bowling for Soup is from my hometown. And some famous football players that apparently I've never heard of are from my hometown. Or if you look up Council Bluffs, you will discover that a Power Ranger is from here. <clears throat> but if you were to look up Nazareth on Wikipedia, 
under the section notable people, it would have said no one. Nothing good. And yet that is the exact place that God sent Joseph and Mary and Jesus to live. How regular. (laughs) How not spectacular. Yet the Bible says, the last line of verse 23 says that that happened so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That he would be called a Nazarene. God promised and predicted even this. And here's what I think it means for us. God's promises give life to our regular days. God's promises give life to our regular days. Every time Mary and Joseph watched Jesus, the promised king of God, every time they watched him kick a soccer ball in the front yard and wish that they could have lived in the big city, they could fall back on This is what God promised. Every time Jesus swung a hammer or finished another project with his dad, he could remember, this is what God promised. The regular days were exactly what God had predicted. Anyone ever had a midlife crisis? You don't have to raise your hand, but had a midlife crisis, quit a boring job, went to the casino just cause, wished you could grow out an awesome hipster beard, done all those in the same week. Sometimes life gets slow and boring and redundant and redundant. And sometimes that repetition makes us wonder if God still cares. It's just another year of planting some seed, watering the seed, harvesting a crop, and then weathering the winter. It's just another day of alarm clock goes off, shower, drive to work, sit in a cubicle, drive home, watch Netflix, go to sleep. And the routine of it all, the regularness of it all makes us wonder, where is God in my regular life? God's promises can breathe life into our most regular days. Consider 1 Timothy 2 verses 2 and 3. It says, pray that we may lead a peaceful and, what's the next word, church? Quiet. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Did you catch that? A peaceful and quiet life is good, God says, with godliness and dignity, that peaceful and quiet life, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And every farmer just said, amen. And every school teacher just said, I wish I could have a peaceful, quiet life, right? It's a rough week, teachers. We're praying for you. But here's where I think this helps us. God's promises gives life to our most regular days. Some of us, We are going to go on and have a famous life, right? Like we're going to travel the world, make tons of money, be in movies. We're going to be superstars. We're going to take the gospel to unreached peoples and the lost tribes and jungles of some place, right? It's going to be awesome. We're going to make the notable people section of Council Bluffs Wikipedia right next to the Power Ranger guy. It'll be amazing. But for most of us, we're going to wake up tomorrow and do exactly what we did on Friday, have a regular life. It's the same life that Joseph and Mary lived in small town Israel. It's the same life that Jesus lived for 30 
years of his life. And all of the regularity, all of that normalness was exactly what God promised, all according to God's predicted promise. Hear this, your peaceful and quiet life doesn't mean you've missed out on God's plan. In fact, it probably means you're right in the middle of it. And God wants to bring life to that regular days. God wants to bring meaning to your pain. God wants to inspire your obedience right where you are. It's what he did for Mary and Joseph. It's what he did for Jesus. And it's what he did for my friend Jerry. I've asked Jerry to come up and share her story with us, her journey with God's promises. And so as she comes up, could you guys clap for her? She's brave to do this. Thank you. So I grew up going to church every Sunday, but for me, God's promises just never seemed real. I couldn't relate to God as a loving God. As a child, between the ages of four and five, I was sexually abused by a babysitter almost daily for about a year and a half. I could never see where God was in that when I needed protection. So I could never see how I could trust him or his promises or really anybody else. As I grew up, my parents got divorced. My dad left two days after Thanksgiving, so this time of year was hard for me. Um, I became rebellious, and all of this led to me making the worst decision of my entire life. When I was 17, I became pregnant and had an abortion. Immediately afterwards... I told God I was sorry. I knew I was going to hell because I had committed the ultimate sin, and I literally turned my face from God and separated myself from him. Of course, things got worse from there. In my mind, I felt like I was going to hell anyway, so I might as well live it up and enjoy the ride. So I became promiscuous. I drank and used drugs. I became a workaholic, and I even became an exercise addict. I literally did anything I could do to keep from being alone with myself because I hated myself, and I believe that God hated me too. My life became so empty that when I was 27, I just really started yearning for church. Um, it was like the lamentation that Doug was talking about. I was just crying out for something different in my life. So I found a church and started going with a friend. Literally, some days we would go straight from being out partying all night. It was a small church, and they would just smile and say, well, we're just glad you're here. <laughs> so I would sit in the pews, and I would just think, of course God loves all of you, and God can forgive all of your sins because you're good, loving, gracious people. But if you knew what I did, you would hate me, just like God hates me. After several months at that church, I had a personal experience with God. I literally felt surrounded by light and the greatest, deepest love I had ever felt in my entire life. And in that moment, I knew that my sins were forgiven. I didn't forgive myself overnight, though, and my life didn't instantly change. But my life got better. I stopped partying, and I started going to Bible studies and reading the Bible I started counseling, 
And eventually Jesus led me to a class at church that was a healing class for women who had been through similar things in their lives. For the first time in my entire life, I began to really hear and understand God's promises. I began to cling to verses like 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. For the first time in my life, I realized that God wanted me to desire to live for him and that when I would, did this, he would heal me and forgive my sins. As I clung to promises like this, God truly did begin to heal me. I was able to eventually forgive the people who had hurt me, and eventually I was able to forgive myself. As I began to find peace in the Lord, he began to use me to heal others as well. I actually began teaching the same class that I had found so much healing through. During this time, I was also diagnosed with early menopause and found out that I could never have children. I went through a period of depression over this, but also at the same time, God was doing so much work with love. I knew that even in this, he would work this to his glory. My daughter's birth mom, who's here today. It was so amazing. I healed them. And then gave me the courage and path. He gave me the greatest children that you could ever have. The, the opportunity to be a mother to two beautiful children. Awesome. Like, who could imagine this, right? Except for Jesus. And, he, mm. <laughs> and so, today I know that God is a loving God. And he's a God who does keep his promises. And he's also a God who has greater you, uh, plans for us than we could ever have for ourselves. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Jerry, for sharing and being brave in your story. I love how you pointed us to the promises of God. Even before you knew them, God was weaving and working in your life. So this morning, I want to invite all of us to respond to God's word to Jerry's testimony. And so if you would, would you join me in prayer? There's no need to rush here. We've got plenty of time. I just want to invite you, would you interact with God? Would you talk with God and invite him to speak to you? Father in heaven, just like Jerry said, we know you are good and we know that you have plans for our lives. There's things that you have promised to us. And so I pray right now, oh, Holy Spirit, would you bring promises to mind? Give us Bible verses to think of. Let us consider your character. Would you remind us of your promises? There might be some people in the room who have never cracked the Bible open, just don't really know what it says or where to go. Father, I pray that you would just let them know who you are. Would you promise them your love? Would you promise them that you are with them even now and care about them even now? There's others who, they know the Bible very well. They've memorized a bunch of Bible verses. They just need one of them to, to jump out right now, to speak to them, 
to clearly communicate your promise to them. And so, Father, would you speak your promises to us this morning? And would you give us the courage, like Jerry did, would you give us the courage to take hold of those promises? Say yes to them. May it not just be another Sunday that we get through and we survive, but may we take hold of you this morning, engage with you and your promises as you speak to us personally and specifically. Some of us just need a promise that we will obey you and take the step of courage we need to take. Others, we need your promise to help us with our mundane jobs, our mundane lives, our regular days. Oh, would you speak your promise over us? For your glory and your praise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.